Hi and welcome to ONS Energy Talks. My name is Inger Johanna Stenberg and I work with communications at ONS, one of the world's leading energy meeting places. In the months following the ONS conference, we will share some of the highlights, insightful conversations and keynotes. This episode is one a little out of the ordinary and with a different take on the energy crisis. You will hear Alspera Klein, the CEO and Director General for the International Fertilizer Association. And she is interviewed by moderator Dr. Valentina Kretschmar, the Energy Transition Director at Capricorn Energy. Klein will share her vision of how 2050 will look like and how we got there. So Alsbetta is the CEO of the International Fertilizer Association. In her role, she's leading the global fertilizer industry towards helping to feed the world and creating and supporting productive and sustainable agriculture practices uh, and to contribute to a world free of hunger and malnutrition. Alsbetta is superbly qualified. And in her previous roles, she led uh, IFC World Bank Group's climate business, positioning IFC as a lead investor in green ESG investments in emerging markets. Very important. Prior to this, she led IFC's uh, agribusiness investments, industrial investments, and managed IFC's 50 billion investment portfolio in emerging markets. Highlights of uh, Alsbeth's career include... uh, She's really passionate about feeding the world, serving the table of 10 billion. Alsbetta, welcome. Thank you. Um, Look, I knew that the energy industry was extremely complex and with enormous challenges ahead. That's until I started reading about fertilizer industry (laughs) in my preparation for, for this interview. My goodness, it's huge. And it's the challenges that you face are enormous, if not actually even more, even bigger than the challenges in the energy industry. Can you start by just painting this picture of the the scale of the industry? How important uh, is it? And and also link it to the energy industry because they're actually inextricable. Absolutely. So first of all, uh, thank you for the invite to this energy conference, because all of you are probably asking, why is this person here? What do we have to do with fertilizers? So let me just put a few numbers together, which would illustrate why this is an important conversation. Today, there is 800 million people who are either hungry or extremely food insecure in the world. And in the last six months, that number went up by 10%. 10%. Why? Because there is no exports of food out of Ukraine, and there is no export of fertilizers out of many other parts of the Black Sea. Today, all of us eat, and we eat well, and we eat well, 50% of us eat well because of mineral fertilizers. And if we don't have them, 50% of us will eat a lot less. In Western Europe, as of Friday, 50%, of nitrogen capacity is shut down. 50% of nitrogen capacity in Western Europe has been shut down as of Friday. What does that mean? We are not going to have enough fertilizer to feed the world. And if you ask me why is it shut down, it is shut down because the cost of gas is the equivalent of $500 a barrel of oil. And when it costs you 2,500 euros to produce nitrogen that you then sell for 700 or 1,000 or 1,200, you're not going to do it. You're going to shut down because you can no longer produce. This is why it is important to understand 
as we stand here today, that energy is food. And what you do in the energy sector, obviously you bring us electricity, you bring us light. But what you need to understand is that you feed all of us. And you feed all of us every day. Energy and food are interconnected, and fertilizer is one of these transition mechanisms. That's why, that's why this conversation is important today. My goodness, this is so sobering. Um, and just briefly, I want to really paint a more optimistic picture in the future. We will get, well. we'll we'll get, get there. We'll get there. How do we resolve this challenge now in the near term? Uh, the, the, what you have said, there's staggering statistics. 50% of capacity shut down. Um, I'll, I'll throw one more number, and then we're going to go to much more rosier picture in 2050. It costs about 70 cents to give someone in Africa enough fertilizer to seed an acre. That same person, when she becomes a refugee in Berlin, it's going to cost us about 17 euros a day to feed that person. It is absolutely essential to make sure that farmers have enough, to, enough seed, enough fertilizer, enough to grow food so that they don't become refugees in Berlin. This is not a question of energy security. This is a question of hunger. This is a question of migration. This is a question of upcoming winter in Europe. But if we miss a couple of seasons of harvests elsewhere in the world, this will become a migration crisis, very dissimilar to what we've seen with the Syrian refugee in Europe because of its scale. My we are going to talk about something much more positive Indeed. in 2050, right? Indeed. Please, please, Elsbetta, give us some uh, really beautiful picture. Paint us a beautiful okay, picture. Okay, it will be a realistic world as, as the Canadian minister like It's going to be a realistic picture. Can we be... Okay, can we go there? Okay. So I was asked to look at the retrospective. I was asked to look at 2050, and I was asked to think about what are the key turning points that got us where we are in 2050. So let us just briefly paint a picture for 2050. So um, I hope I'll still be alive then. I hope to sit on my porch and drink coffee and marveling at a beautiful ocean view in front of me. And this could be West Coast Canada, East Coast US, Cape Verde, Dar es Salaam. Anyway, the ocean temperature will be stabilized. It will be a bit warmer than 2022, but not too much. Um, the coast will no longer go through annual flooding as we've seen in 2030s and 2040s. I'll have a coffee in my hand because I often have a coffee in my hand. But that cup of coffee is going to cost me $15. Why $15? Because when the farmers in Guatemala and Colombia left their farms to work in cities, the world companies had to team up and they had to offer living wage to those coffee farmers. And now my coffee is going to cost $15, but I'm going to be happy and I'm going to enjoy it. My self-driving electric car um, can be in front of my house at my demand, but I don't need it because I made a deal with electric vehicle company um, and with my local utility, and I'm charging their cars, and those cars will show up at my door at will. But then I will not, not, not need that much of a transport anymore because all of my shopping will be delivered, and it will be bundled with my neighbors so that it's delivered in a cost-effective way, and I will use the car mainly to go and see my friends or go on trips. I'll have a veggie burger for lunch um, and maybe some iced tea. Around 2035, I gave up all animal protein because it was proven unattainable, very costly since we started carbon accounting, and that beef and chicken has a huge carbon cost. And that veggie burger, it's not like the 1980s, it is actually tasty, and it's close to the burger that I can imagine from memory. When I check my go-to sources for news, what I see in the news is that in some parts of the world, there'll still be climate refugees 
there will still be people who cannot make a living because their areas are flooded or no longer suitable for living. Closer to my home, my utility company uh, will have bundled all the services, uh, my house, my, my, my electricity, my water, and all of it is connected on a single app. And what about the corporate world, all of you here? By 2040, most large companies decarbonize 70% of their production, and carbon market around 2040 was finally sorted out and covered the remaining 30% of, uh, of pollution by credible offsets. Most companies cut their operational emissions, which meant that they invested heavily in research and development, supporting, testing, and scaling emerging solutions, and pushing for aggressive policies that pressured suppliers and other business partners to strive for similar changes. Everything that comes in a store today has a carbon footprint on the packaging. We can choose groceries and we can choose clothing based on a carbon footprint that it entails. NASDAQ provides full calculation of all the listed companies for scope one, two, and three emissions. Pension funds focused on green investments until 2023. When the state of Florida banned ESG screen for investments in 2022, pension funds pivoted and started funding transition to green rather than just green. And this is where the carbon heavyweights got their funding to do new business models, new work to reset what they were doing. This is the world, this is my world in 2050. What do you think? Well, it, it's, it's a fascinating world. It's a fascinating world. And we absolutely need this vision. We need visionary people that will actually be able to uh, paint this future for us. Um, but I, I have to be uh, honest, and I, I have to say this, to me, this sounds like Elon's trip to Mars, okay? Uh, <laughs> a little bit closer to, than that, but he might be faster. <laughs> as so, we heard. But I would like you maybe to give us the key turnkeys. What, what were the key uh, points that got us there? G bring us a little bit more to reality. I'll bring you so back that, a few years back, sure. Yeah. So I believe there are seven tipping points. Why seven? Because... I thought about it, and that looked like a good number of things to remember. So, tipping point number one, corporate disclosure. In 2022, Biden administration in the United States asked for disclosure of climate risk by companies. The political right cried wolf, these are tree huggers killing my business. Then in 2025, Miami suffered 120 days of 45 degree heat, and parts of Miami Beach were underwater. By 2029, with Democrats back in the power in the US, climate risk became business risk, because by then it was evident that this is what it was. It was the risk to everybody's business. Companies voluntarily disclosed climate risk because it was about their survivals. And th as they disclosed, by 2030, banks started pricing climate risk into the cost of their loans. That house in Miami had an insurance premium of 20% of its value. Why? Because there was one in five chance that in any good year, it will be flooded. Don't like it? Tough luck. Actuaries tell the banks that there is such a chance, and this is the price to pay for the insurance. And developers and companies started pricing climate risk in their modeling, because risk is money, and money talks. The second point, the second tipping point, is investment in technologies. As companies tried to cut their emissions, investments in future technologies became critical in achieving those goals. In 2030, there was a major buildup of an industry that can suck down carbon out of atmosphere. It was being propelled by a growing body of science, finding that this is the way we need to go 
to prevent the planet of heating up beyond two degrees. Scientists discovered and banks funded a variety of potential ways to do it, such as direct air carbon capture, deploying reactive minerals, and many others. The general promise was that these approaches can suck down and store carbon away in a reliable manner. There were all sorts of other areas that developed. Uh, Microsoft's one billion climate innovation fund was just a start, and many billions were flowing in the same direction. Thank you, Osbeta. I think uh, we have a lot of work to do to get to these current, uh, key uh, turn um, key uh, points. Now, how would you sum it all up? I'm going to go to point number three. Point number three is that in 2022, we realized that the world is not a random walk. Then moving one, one piece of global puzzle actually creates unintended consequences elsewhere. Let me just illustrate with a very simple example. A story of a random airplane over Belarus and what it has in common with a farmer in Brazil. Have you heard that story? Can I share that? Yeah, please do. Briefly. So, how do you catch a journalist that you don't like who writes bad things about you? Well, you grab his plane and you make it land in Minsk. Well, that happened in May 26, 2021. And guess what? After that, there were sanctions imposed on Belarus. And Belarus has a lot of natural resources, including potash. Potash is in very few places of the world, Canada, Russia, Belarus, that's pretty much it. And that potash is needed to grow plants and to grow soybeans and to grow many, many other things. And Brazilian farmers don't have any of it because it's stuck in Belarus. This is how a movement in one part of the world influences everything else. And in 2022, politicians and others realized how the world is interconnected. The second point, point four in tipping points, is that we realized in 2022 that food is energy. I already mentioned a little bit of it. And uh, what is absolutely critical is that what we are seeing in the Ukraine war, Russia war against Ukraine, is that food is energy. And food translates into energy every single day. With the capacity shutdowns in Europe, there are very few places where we can bring fertilizers to the farmers. And unfortunately, it's not a question whether we are in a global food crisis or whether we will be. We are very much deeply into it. Look, it is absolutely fascinating. First, to have a glimpse of this net zero future in 2050, but also to learn how inextricable food and energy are. Osbeta, thank you so much for painting this picture for us and for sharing your deep knowledge, expertise, experience of the sector with us today. Thank you. Thanks very much. You just heard Osbeta Klein, the CEO and Director General of the International Fertilizer Association, in conversation with Dr. Valentina Kretschmar at the ONS conference session, The Net Zero, Wednesday, 31st of August, 2022. Stay tuned and subscribe to ONS Energy Talks, where you find your podcasts to hear more highlights from ONS in the months to come.